a number of months ago, I was reading as part of my normal biblical uh, path that I follow through uh, in the Psalms, and I was reading Psalm uh, 37. And looking back on that moment now, I realized what a critical and helpful day it was for me. It was a time of spiritual and sort of attitudinal reset, which I so needed. And it continues to be so even to this day. I was faced with a choice uh, that particular day, and I'm almost faced with this choice every day. And just so you know, I am nowhere near perfect. I battle every day. And uh, I was battling with red-hot anger. I was just mad at the state of the world and those who are in control of the world. I was mad because of issues that were unfolding around me. Anxiety and frustration were welling up inside of me. And Psalm 37 was like a reset to me. And it continues to be. And I made a note to myself, self, maybe this would be helpful to lead this small group of God's people through Psalm 37. And out of that has been born this series that we're in on Christ in the Psalms. And so today I want to consider a portion of Psalm 37. Uh, hopefully we'll get a couple more weeks in this particular psalm. But I just wanted to make uh, a few points about it before we sort of dive into it. Uh, psalm 37 was written by David. It's one of the, I think it's like 78 psalms that are attributed to David. And it appears that this one was written later in his life, uh, in verse uh, 25 of verse 37. Uh, it says there, uh, my fingers are shaking, I don't know why I'm nervous. I have been young, and now I am old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. And so the perspective of Psalm 37 is the perspective of age. It's the perspective of having been there, done that. It's the perspective of being able to look back over the course of life and examining one's own life and examining the lives of others and making some conclusions or drawing some conclusions about that. It's wisdom from the one who has, or from one who has got a great deal of mileage under their feet. And in this case, it's particularly wisdom as it relates to the righteous and the wicked. And so what he's about to tell us is it pays to walk with God. And this is how I did it. The second thing you learn about Psalm 37 is that it's an acrostic psalm. Uh, there are probably a half dozen or maybe more acrostic psalms um, in the book of Psalms. And an acrostic psalm is a psalm that each verse or a few verses follow a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And so it would be like if somebody were to write a poem in English, and in each stanza they started with the beginning letter uh, subsequent of the English language. So the first stanza started with A, the second with B, the third with C, the fourth with D, D and so on. Uh, probably the most perfect example of an acrostic psalm is Psalm 119. It has 22 stanzas of eight verses each. All of those eight verses in each of those stanzas begin with that particular letter of the Hebrew al alphabet. And it's on a theme of the Word of God. It's a brilliant, brilliant psalm. And so this also is an acrostic psalm. And its purpose is not to be exhaustive, 
but it's to try and encompass a wide range of what it means to live in the world with evil people. And David is wanting us to figure that out. It's also a pneumatic device, so it helps memory when, when you know that the next few verses are going to start with this letter and the next few verses with the next letter. It's an aid to memory in a day when not everyone necessarily had a scroll of the particular book of Psalms, and they memorized Scripture. And so it is a, sort of an A to Z of what it means to live among the wicked. As I said, it's not comprehensive of that, but it certainly is a psalm in which the psalmist provides us principles and guidelines for living among the wicked in the world in which we live. I use that phrase, living among the wicked, purposefully. It's intentional. We can't get away from the wicked. We can't get away from the reality that we live among the wicked. The psalmist here, David, uses the, the noun wicked uh, 13 times in this particular psalm. And he also uses then some synonyms as well to point to who the wicked are. It's as though David is preoccupied by the wicked as he is now writing his reflection in old age about that. He can't get them out of his mind. He, he can't get the impact that they can come to bear or have to bear on one who is righteous, which naturally then leads to the question, just who are the wicked anyway? If you read the Psalms, you will find that phrase, the wicked and the righteous, again and again and again. Most of us, I think, when we hear the word wicked, think of really, really bad people. We, we think of those who are, who are sort of in the news because of their wickedness or of their evil. And we think of righteous people as those who are exceptionally righteous, those who, for one reason or another, stand out because of their walk with God. But you'll notice, and we'll come back and say a bit more about this later, but you'll notice that here David doesn't identify the wicked with any people group. He doesn't say the wicked Canaanites or the wicked Hittites. What we will see is that he identifies the wicked with a character issue or character traits, um, that he understands them to be a, a people who live in a particular way in relation to God. It's like as we read Psalm 1, which is a psalm which distinguishes between the righteous and the wicked, which then leads to the last observation, is Christ in the Psalms. We sing with Jesus in the Psalms. We pray with Jesus in the Psalms. Pastor Barry had mentioned last week that um, the Psalms have been referred to as the prayer book of Israel, and I think that's very true. A number of writers have noted that. If it was the prayer book of Israel, though, loved ones, it was also the prayer book of Jesus. If you want to know how Jesus prayed, read the Psalms. If you want to know what Jesus prayed, read the Psalms. It struck me that one day he was praying and his disciples came up to him and says, Lord, would you teach us how to pray? And do you remember what he said to them? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then a few more positions, petitions. Every one of those petitions is a summary of an aspect of Psalms. You can find the Lord's Prayer in the Psalms. It's as though Jesus took all of his praying, all of his reading, all of his living, all of his singing in the Psalms, and he encapsulated it in the prayer that he taught his disciples to pray. The second thing that I think is of importance, at least for Psalm 37, is to know that I think it's an exposition of Matthew 5.5. 5. The meek 
shall inherit the earth. That phrase, inherit the earth, is used five, or inherit the land in Psalm 37, is used five times. Jesus takes that and he applies it now to the righteous in eternity to come. The meek shall inherit the earth. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is David's petition in verse 1. Verse 1 is jarring. It really is jarring to a Christian when you read it. It's sort of like it wakes you up. And it's taking on two issues. It says, first, fret not yourself because of evildoers. That applies to each one of us. Fret not yourself because of evildoers, because of their ways, because of their work, because of their decisions, because of their policies, because of their influence. And the second is, be not envious of wrongdoers. Don't envy those who seem to prosper in wickedness. Don't be jealous of those who seem to succeed in sin and nothing ever happens to them. The first petition there checks my inner feelings towards the wicked, how I feel towards them and their actions and their decisions and their influence upon my life because of their influence in the world. And the second one warns against becoming jealous or envious of those who do wrong and both present significant dangers for the righteous or for the people of God. For me, when I initially read this, it was the first part that I particularly needed to be reminded of. Don't fret yourself because of evildoers. It's not easily translated, and so it helps to read a number of different translations to how the translators try and capture what this Hebrew word meant. And so, in in general, it means to be hot or furious or burn because of anger. So some then says, don't be agitated by evildoers. Don't be provoked by evildoers. Don't get heated about evildoers. Don't worry about evildoers. Don't be vexed by evildoers. Three times, in fact, in this verse this morning, we read this word fret. In verse one, it says, don't let yourself fret or be burned up over evildoers. Have you ever found yourself doing that? A decision a politician has made, a proclamation a scientist has made, something a teacher has said in school, something a workmate has made, and you just find anger welling up inside of your heart. In verse 7, don't get burned up over the one who makes his way prosper. The implication is in evil, the one who succeeds by being wicked, the one who prospers in wickedness. Don't get white hot with anger. And then the third use of that word, fret, is in verse 8. Don't get burned up. Why? It only leads to evil. Me, I translated in the Paul Hawks way, don't get your shorts in a knot. But we can do this as we look at evildoers. And I hope you see the relevance of, for, for your life and for the day and age in which we live. I hope you understand how mad you find yourself getting over politicians, over decisions they made. I, I, I found myself so angry this morning, and I, I should know better than this on a Sunday morning before I have to preach. But I opened an email about MAID, 
And I found that Canada is the leading provider of organs through youth in Asia in the world. And I found out that Quebec doctors are pushing for MAID to be applied to infants from birth to age one. And I found out that Vancouver is by far the highest percentage of people in all of Canada that are using the services of MAID. And my heart was raging. I was fretting. And it still is. And I need the word of God to calm me and to settle me. And I hope you can see how when you read your blogs or when you read of decisions about climate or decisions about gender or decisions about science or you hear about wars and the, the, the propaganda that is poured out in our world because of wars and you hear about gender issues, the list goes on and on and on. The news feeds that you follow, the blogs that you read, they tend to stoke rage in our hearts. Do not fret. Do not become white hot with anger towards evildoers. That's often our response, is it not? And it's the result of helplessness and powerlessness. And David is saying, look to us, I've been there. Know that I understand this reality and this experience. And Jesus is saying to us, look, I know who is in control. He is my father. I've walked with him. I have walked this same path and God has preserved me and God has protected me. And I have never once fretted over the prosperity of the evil. And then notice what David says. Don't get burned up. It only makes for evil. You see, loved ones, what happens in your own heart? When you are fretting and angry, you lose perspective. When you are fretting and angry, you sin in your own heart. You cultivate hatred towards a particular politician. You cultivate animosity or bitterness towards a particular people group. We allow our agitation and our anger and our worry to create division and tension amongst us as brothers and sisters in Christ and as family members with one another. And the trouble is this, when we get worked up about all of this, we tend not to think rationally. We tend not to think responsibly. We lose sight of theology. David understood this. Some of you may recall the instance in 1 Samuel 25 when Nabal was throwing a big Thanksgiving party. And he was throwing it because he had um, had so, much, uh, um, so many sheep born and so much wool shorn and so much wine produced in his vineyards. And he was, wanted to sort of celebrate this with one another. And David had heard about this party that was going on. And he sent a group of his men, a small group, to, to uh, Nabal and just requested Nabal, you know, we've lived among you for a number of months and we've served and we've protected your flocks and we've protected your men. Could you just give us a little bit so that we can have a party? And you remember Nabal's response? Who is David? And why should I give him some of my goods that my servants have cultivated? This is my stuff. And you remember what happened to David? Anger rose in his heart. And he says, look out for Nabal and all of his men, if any of them are alive in a day. And he determined with his men to go and slaughter every single one of Nabal's men. Have you ever felt like that? 
Have you ever had a woman, though, like Abigail, Abigail come along and stop you in her path? And David, David, listen, why do you want to destroy your whole life because of your anger? Why do you want to ruin your reputation? Why do you want to destroy your reign before God has even set you up? Don't do this. Sometimes this rage is not rational. It's irrational. And we need theology to intersect and intercept our thinking to bring us back to sanity. I was reading this morning and I almost wanted to change gears and preach from Daniel 7 this morning. But you read Daniel 7 and it's a difficult passage, but it's a brilliant passage. In the first eight verses, it describes four kingdoms. It doesn't tell us who these kingdoms are, but it describes these kingdoms by just horrific beasts. Just some of the ugliest, most horrendous beasts you will ever see. And what Daniel is doing and what God, I think, is doing through that is saying, listen, the kingdoms of this world are truly beastly. They are horrific. They are evil. They are horrendous. And they are terrifying. And Daniel was terrifying. But then you need to quickly read Daniel 7, 9 to 14. And there, what does he say immediately? I saw the Ancient of Days sitting on his throne. And he describes the reign and the rule of God. He gives perspective, this theological perspective, that the earth may appear beastly and vile and horrid, but the Ancient of Days is on the throne. So the first warning is fret not yourself because of evildoers. Don't allow them to get under your skin. Don't allow those news broadcasters and those climate people and those scientists or your neighbor or your schoolmate or your workmate, don't let them get under your skin so that you rage. The second one, though, is equally dangerous. Don't envy or become jealous of wrongdoers. Here the warning is not about anger, but it's about alignment. Here it's about looking around you and seeing the wicked prosper and saying, man, I wish I could have that. Man, I wish I could enjoy their sex life. Man, I wish I could enjoy their drugs. Man, I wish I could drink like they did and not have a conscience about it. Man, I wish I didn't have to be honest at work. Man, I wish I didn't care about being honest in my taxes and on and on and on and on and on it goes. David says, don't be envious or jealous of wrongdoers. Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. In another psalm, the writer says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, and sometimes I find myself in as for me, but as for me, my feet almost stumbled. My steps nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Don't you wish somebody would be honest with you once in a while and acknowledge our own struggles and our own battling? And then this from Job, bear with me and I will speak. And after I have spoken, mock on. <laughs> mock on, that sounds like a song. Sorry. 
Look at me and be appalled and lay your hand over your mouth. When I remember, I am dismayed and shuddering seizes my flesh. Why do the wicked live, reach old age and grow mighty in power? Their offspring are established in their presence, their descendants before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear and no rod of God is upon them. Their bull breeds without fail. Their cow calves and doesn't miscarry. They send out their little boys like a flock and their children dance. They sing to the tambourine and to the lyre and rejoice at the sound of the pipe. They spend their days in prosperity and in peace they go down to Shoal. In peace they die. They say to God, depart from us. We don't desire the knowledge of your ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what profit do we get if we pray to him? Behold, is not there prosperity in their hand? Job says, the counsel of the wicked is far from me. Or the writer in the Proverbs. Righteous are you, O Lord. Or this is Jeremiah. Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you. Yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the treacherous thrive? You plant them, and they prosper and take root. They grow and produce fruit. You are near in their mouth, but far from their heart. Or Proverbs twenty three seventeen. Let not your heart envy sinners. The wicked envies, or sorry, let but continue in the fear of the Lord all day long. Why have you been envious of the wicked? Why have you been jealous of the wicked? Why have you wanted to come out from under the gaze of God? Why have you wished that God were dead and that God would not hear you? You see, the prosperity of the wicked is troublesome. We wonder why God allows them to succeed. We wonder why God allows them a full life and a prosperous life and a healthy life. We are confounded when the lines are blurred. We're troubled when we move from black and white into realms of gray. When obedience is difficult and disobedience seems rewarded. So who are the wicked and who are the righteous? We find these terms everywhere in the book of Psalms. And who are the wicked and who are the righteous? In simplest terms, the wicked are those who reject God. They're not the Hitlers of the world, although he was wicked. They can be your neighbor. They can be your schoolmate. They can be your idol, your favorite sports person, your favorite celebrity. The wicked are those who reject God. They deny that he exists. They reject his ways and his commands. When they think of God, they think of a God who doesn't see, a God who doesn't speak, a God who doesn't judge, a God who doesn't exist, a God who is powerless. That's the definition of wicked. One who simply rejects God. The righteous, then, on the other hand, are those who believe in the existence of God. Those who follow after God. Those who try and obey God. Those who walk in the ways of God those who believe that God exists, those who believe that God speaks, those who believe that God's commands are being taken seriously, those who believe that one day God will set the world right. Put another way, we might say the wicked and the righteous 
are defined in terms of their relationship to God. Not in terms of their acts, but in terms of relationship to God. And so when David says, don't be envious of the wicked, what he's saying is don't be jealous of sinners. Don't be jealous of their sinfulness. Don't be jealous of their godlessness. Don't envy their life without God. Loved ones, we've said this so many times. The Bible only presents two ways. The way of the wicked and the way of the righteous. It only presents two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. It only presents two fathers, your heavenly father God or your hellish father Satan. It only presents two doors, the door that leads to life and the door that leads to death. It only presents two eternities, eternal life and eternal, eternal death. There is no middle ground. There is no third, fourth, fifth, sixth way path or people. You're one or the other. The simplicity and the clarity of the Bible is really, really quite simple and clear. So what we are warned about then is envy or jealousy of those who succeed in sin, who prosper in having no regard for God. The warning is about longing after the ways and rewards of people who care nothing about God and yet succeed in their ways. This is troublesome to those who care about the things of God, who walk in the ways of God and yet seem to suffer. So what David is warning about is an attitude. He's warning about a way of thinking. We see the power and the deception of the wicked. We see the prosperity of the wicked. And David is saying to you and I, don't lose your mind over it. Don't get sucked into their world or be seduced by their world. Don't lose your cool. Don't become stressed, obsessed, or de-stressed by it all. Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. Steal your heart and mind with the warning of verse 1, 2, and 8. The path of the wicked is illusory. The path of the wicked is temporary. Cultivate the long-term view. Cultivate an eternal view. Cultivate a heavenly view. Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. The second is our Father, who art in heaven. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. These petitions are captured by the psalmist in Psalm 137. David doesn't lead us, leave us in negative land. He says, now let's step into positive land. What's the alternative here? What exhortations does he give? Well, consider verse 3. Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Believe in his power. Believe in his goodness. Believe in his providence. Commit all your circumstances to the Lord. Our Father who art in heaven. I see all of this, but I see you in heaven and I trust you, Father. Trust in the Lord and do good. These are part of a single thought, a single Do what is good. Think about what is honorable. Act with goodness towards others. In the midst of all the evil, in the midst of all its prosperity, do what is good. Love your neighbor as yourself. Care for one another. Help somebody out in trouble. Believe God. Obey God. Do what is good and right. 
Thy kingdom come. Invite the kingdom of God into your life. Invite the kingdom of God into your world. Live out the kingdom of God in the areas in which you have an influence. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land. Stay put. There's a lot of places I would like to live. I'd like to live in Vanderhoof for a couple weeks every year. But, you know, running away doesn't solve the problem of wickedness. Um, running away might give you peace for a moment, but the wicked will show up. And so he says, stay where you are. Jesus prayed, Father, don't take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, just help me. You know where I live. You know where I work. You know my family. You know my schoolmates. You know my university chums. Lord, don't take me out of that environment. Just keep me from evil. Give me perspective. Don't let me fret. Don't let me be envious. Just help me, Father. And then notice that phrase, and befriend faithfulness. That's, what better friend could you have than faithfulness? Starting with faithfulness to God. God, I will walk with you. God, I will trust you. God, I will obey you. Spirit of God, lead me, guide me, direct me. Father, you are the ultimate example of faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not. Befriend faithfulness. Do there are so many unfaithful people around us? Everywhere we look. At a, on a dime, they will change their loyalty. On a dime, they will change their, their, their obedience. On a dime, they will go in a different direction. Do you know what a treasure it is to find a faithful friend? Do you know what a wonder it is to have a faithful heavenly father? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What a mindset it was this that, that sort of began to bring me back to sort of earth. I needed to have this reminder of the attitudes that I needed to cultivate. I needed a mindset adjustment. What a contrast to jealousy and anger. Loved ones, don't focus on men and women. Focus on God. Set your mind on things above. Remember, God is real, and that changes everything. Consider verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord. Consider his position. He is in heaven. Think about that. It, you know, you can, you can spend hours and hours just contemplating our Heavenly Father in heaven. As David did, he saw the Ancient of Days sitting on the throne as John did in Revelation. I looked and behold the throne and there was one sitting on the throne. The psalmist talks about our Father in heaven looking down upon earth and seeing the ways of the wicked and the righteous. Delight yourself in the Lord. Delight yourself in his rule. Delight yourself in his reign. Consider his name. Hallowed be thy name. There is no name like the name of our God. Salvation is in no other name but in the name of Jesus. Delight yourself in his kingdom. Do you delight yourself in the reign of God, in the rule of God? That, that, that means you don't think, just think about it, but that you live for it. You live in it. You, 
You, you, you let kingdom values fill your heart and your world. You delight in doing what your king wants you to do. Loved ones, this isn't sticking our head in the sand. Rather, it is thinking about the right things. It is putting our head in the right space. Setting your mind on the right things. Jesus, I think, must have had this in mind when he wrote Matthew 6, 31. What shall we say? Don't be anxious about anything. Wondering what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. This is the tension. They're prospering. They're succeeding. I don't have, but, but no, God hasn't forgotten you. God knows what you need. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all of these things will be given to you. Consider verse five. God's not looking for extraordinary things from us. He's just looking for us to be ordinary sons and daughters of our king. I wrestle from time to time when I read the Bible. Um, I hope I can say this right. I, I read of Noah and Moses and David and Joseph and Peter and John. And, and I'm so thankful for these men and Esther, women in the Bible. But I'm not them. I'm not extraordinary. I'm ordinary. And I often think of the tens of thousands, the millions of people that walked with God and served God while Noah lived and while David lived and while Peter and John lived. Just normal Christians. I don't think I, well, I will say it. I, I don't think any one of us, if the Bible were written again, our names would be in the Bible. But we would be part of the saints. And what do saints do? They commit their ways to the Lord. Do you do that? Commit your way to the Lord. This is an action. In the midst of this fretting, in the midst of this envy and jealousy, commit your way to the Lord. It's a beautiful sort of word picture. It, it, the word means roll your circumstances onto Yahweh. Take your anger, take your anxiety, take your envy, take your jealousy, and roll it up onto the Lord. Get rid of it. I, I, I have a job which I hate every year, and the job is doing the hedges in my house. They're like 12 feet high, about 150, 200 feet each on either side, eight feet deep, and it kills me every single year, and I dread it. One of the things that I do, though, is I take probably five truckloads of waste to the dump, thousands of pounds. But what I do is I fill up the wheelbarrow, and I ride it up into the back of my truck, and I dump it into my truck. And one wheelbarrow at a time, and then my truck gets so heavy that the springs sag. But this was a picture for me. Paul, just roll it up onto Jesus. Just put your stuff in a wheelbarrow. Put a plank up onto his back. Push it up and dump it. And he's able to handle it. 
The action is ours. Will you give your anger to the Lord? Will you give your anxiety to the Lord? Will you give your envy and your jealousy to the Lord? Roll it up onto Jesus. Trust in the Lord. This is, this is a, an act of faith. It's a choice. Do you believe that God knows all things? Do you believe that God is present at all times and in every way and in every place in, in this universe all the time? Do you believe that God is all-powerful? Then trust him. You don't have to understand how that all works itself out. You just have to believe that it's true, and I do. And so roll up all your stuff and put it on the Lord and trust him that he knows what he's doing with your life. He knows what he's doing with your circumstances. He knows who's surrounding you. He knows the circumstances of the country and the province and the city that we live in. I reread the book of Esther. I've been hearing this again and again as the stuff is happening in the Near East and Gaza and Israel and the war. And I've listened to a, a few people talk about this. And Esther has been so prominent in their thinking. Because in Esther, in the whole book, God is never mentioned once. But his fingerprints are everywhere. And you see how God just turns the tables and God changes directions and God influences thinking. Trust in the Lord. So commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. This is kind of my version then of, um, in a sense, David is saying, then sit back and watch God work. Rest in the Lord. You've done what you can do now. You've acted. You, you've committed your stuff to the Lord. Now you've put your trust in the Lord. Now sit back and wait for God. And in fact, that's what verse 7 says. Be silent before the Lord and wait patiently for him. That's really hard stuff to do sometimes. To wait and to trust in the Lord. But that's the mindset that we're to have. Commit, trust, delight, do, wait. There are two reasons given, finally, for resisting the temptations of losing it where the wicked are concerned or of longing for the prosperity of the wicked. Note in verse 2, it's the power and the, 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 the prosperity of the wicked is fleeting. You know that, Right? Have you lived long enough to actually see that worked out? For they wither quickly like grass and wilt like tender green shoots. Eventually they lose their beauty. Eventually most of them lose their wealth. Eventually most of them lose their souls. There, there is an inevitability to time. And even if they succeed to the end of their life with health, wealth, and prosperity, they wither and fade. It's a temporary prosperity. Keep that in mind, loved ones. The evil rulers that so dominate our lives will one day die. Those that you envy in their sinfulness and rejection of God will one day die. The second thing he says in verse 9, for evildoers will be destroyed, but those who put their hope in the Lord will inherit the land. Remember I said, and Jesus took that in Matthew 5, 5 and says, the meek will inherit the earth. This is a promise of eternity. It's a promise of the new heaven and the earth where, where the righteous will then come back to this world and live and reign on the earth with Christ forever 
and ever and ever. Keep eternity in mind, loved ones. So pray like this, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So there's a choice, isn't there? It's a choice between the path of the wicked, not just ugly evil, but those who reject God. They, they simply want nothing to do with God. They want to formulate their own direction. They want to formulate their own path. They want to live their own lives. They want to be the captains of their own soul. That is a path. Or there is a path of the righteous, which says, I believe in God. I want to follow after God. I want to shape my life by the contours of his word. There's a mindset which says, do I live for the temporary or do I live for the eternal? Do I have the long view in mind? Not just this week, not just next month, not just five years from now, but do I have eternity in my mind? So don't think that David is urging passivity as we reflect on the world in which we live. Rather, he says, trust in the Lord and do good. Find your delight in the Lord. Rule your circumstances upon the Lord. Be silent and wait for him. And I close with these words from somebody I read. What David is praying for is a posture of non-idolatry. That is, he wants to keep you from acting as if you are God, as if your effort will right the wrong, your rage correct the injustice. Don't begin to think that your seething, boiling anger will somehow produce equity. Leave to your God to order and provide.